What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Not About Wrestling. I am Crystal Minotti. I'm Stephanie Bowen. That Stephanie. is my name. <laughs> I don't know. I'm dumb today. You're dumb today? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, okay, why are you dumb today? No, I don't know. I'm just being silly. Uh, because I do have days where I'm just like, I, I'm not myself today. It's Sunday. We don't normally record on Sundays, so normally I don't use any brain power on Sundays. I don't like it. So it required... A little more brain power, a little more thought. And it's earlier. We're normally evening recorders. It's like Do you like it in the afternoon. I didn't I don't hate it, but normally this is not what I'm doing on on my Sundays. I don't yeah, mind it, but I I think I don't like it because this might come off the wrong way. But I mean, we do this show for enjoyment, but it is technically still like a job. Like mm-hmm. we we don't get paid for it. But it's a job. Very and much when, a job. <laughs> yeah. And when you do a job on Sundays, you know, it, it just, when you have to do the job on Sunday, just kind of like, uh, uh, yeah. But no. it's something we're passionate about and it's still enjoyable. So it was a great conversation today. So. It was. And we, I, 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 it was a great conversation talking to Roy. I think the reason I don't like to do it on Sundays is because it then makes a Sunday feel like a weekday. And I don't know the difference in the days then. You know what I mean? Yeah, it'll kind of throw you off for the week. Like we're sitting here recording, and if you told me it was Tuesday, I'd believe you. Since we record on Thursdays, is no, tomorrow it just feel like a Friday. It, <laughs> no, is, is, is it going to trick our brain into thinking tomorrow's Friday and getting excited when it's a Monday? Womp womp. Mondays are oh, okay. When I work for I work from home and I'm freelance, so every day has a terrible feel to me. You have different <laughs> feels because you have an actual job. <laughs> So your days have feels. Hold on. Don't don't say that your freelancing is not an actual job. You it have is, an actual job. It is an actual job, but if you if you were not to log on at 9:30, people would notice. Whereas if I went most of the morning without doing anything, no one would notice. That's true. You might notice because okay. you'd be like, why isn't Chris texted me something like, stupid yet? <laughs> That's true. Why didn't this moron say something yet? Uh so yeah. Uh, so we had Roy Lusher on today. Super nice guy. I would have gotten his name completely wrong. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about it before we had him on too. And I was like, okay, there's like two ways it could be pronounced. And it was neither of those ways. I had Lucera. I didn't know. It was either. Uh, it was thinking like Lucier, like French. Oh, you made him French. French. Well, the way it's pronounced, the way it's spelled, it could have been. Um, or. Or Luchier, which would have been cool because he's into Lucha. Into stuff, Lucha. So that's that why you thought that. Yeah. <laughs> I guess yeah. so. I don't know. That would make sense. That would make sense too. Uh, but it's uh it's Roy Lucher. And he um God, how would you explain him? Not only is he a he's a collector. He's a collector. Yeah, that's a good that's a good word. He's a collector of used to be tapes, now DVDs of rare uh wrestling events that you and I don't even probably know exist or or ever happened. And then he also collects Lucha figures that he proudly displays all over his wall and uh, can get grab at a moment's notice, especially one that he paid $480 for. It was crazy. (laughs) I wanted to ask him, but I decided not to, because I didn't want to go down that whole path. Uh, I feel like a $480 purchase is something you got to talk to the wife about maybe. Yeah. Wife has to be on board with that one. That's uh. Unless That's what gotta, I think about a lot of this collecting stuff. And I'm like, 
Yeah. You got to have a, a supportive partner in that case. What, uh, let's say you start dating a guy and he's got all that stuff. What's the, yeah, I mean, you would probably wouldn't mind cause it's wrestling. So you wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I sort of dated a guy once that was a big collector of stuff uh, of what of like figures, like wrestling figures, not wrestling figures. No, like other Jeff, like action figures. Yeah. I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to put it out there, but yeah. Okay. I dated uh, a girl in college whose father, now you have to remember back when I went to college, whose father uh, collected Beanie Babies. I think Beanie Babies were a big He had a room full of them, and he basically thought he was going to retire on them. A room. A lot of people thought they were going to retire off Beanie Babies. Yeah. Did I ever tell you my Beanie Baby story, my recent Beanie Baby story? You sure did not. What okay. is this? You want to hear it before we talk to Roy? <laughs> I don't know. Yes. Okay. Yes, sure. So I was dating a, a woman and she was cleaning out her stuff and she found like seven or eight beanie babies from when she was a kid that she swore were worth money, but she didn't know how to find out. And I was like, all right, well, give me the beanie babies and I'll like look online. And so I looked online and I was looking up the tags and everything like that. And it seemed like they were worth a good amount of money, but something about it like didn't, I don't know, just didn't seem right. You know, when you find something and you think it's worth a lot of money, it usually ends up being not worth a lot of money. So I was erring on the side of these probably aren't worth what I think they're worth, but let me look into it for because I said I would. Well, I found a guy in my area who is like a Beanie Baby. He does Beanie Baby like grading. And like sells and buys and trades Beanie Babies. Okay. And he's like, was literally three miles from my house. So I sent him an email and I was like, I got a bunch of these Beanie Babies. Would you be able to take a look at him? He's like, sure. Here's my office, whatever. Come down to the office. So I go to this office complex <laughs> and there's all different. It's like one of those, uh, like, it's like the doctor's office and then like mostly doctors, but like a lawyer and it's like a, you know, but it's inside and it goes in a big square. Mm-hmm. So I'm walking the, I walk the square like three times and I can't find where this guy's office is. So finally I see this like door that's not quite labeled and number wise, it would fit into what this guy's office number was supposed to be because <laughs> here's like. 211 and here's 214 and if he was 213 logically here's where 213 would be this is sketchy as shit it was slightly so i knock (laughs) i knock i knock on the door nobody answers so i like have his cell phone number i call him he's like hey man i i got caught up getting lunch i'm on my way back i like lunch took too long to get i was like okay so guy finally shows up it's his office he lets me in when i say it's a closet that's being nice, but inside is a giant desk, um, like, you know, the L-shaped desk with like a credenza next to it. And the room is floor to ceiling Beanie Babies, no, like just stacks and stacks and stacks of Beanie Babies just thrown about like in piles. Oh, my God. So, so he's like, take a seat. And so uh, I show him the Beanie Babies and he's like. Yeah, nah, these aren't really worth anything. And I was like, I knew it. I'm like, what? So do you make money off of this? He's like, well, really, I do 
tech support for, I forget what company he does tech support for. So this is my office for that. But I do the Beanie Baby thing on the side and he makes a good amount of money. But he told me like he's talked to like he's worked with like celebrities and stuff like people who have come to buy Beanie Babies. Like he's like, I know I've met more than a few celebrities going to their house and sold them Beanie Babies because they wanted them from when they were a kid. There's like super rare ones out there. So there is a market still for these Beanie Babies. But this guy, so the stacks and stacks of Beanie Babies were ones that people sent in to like have verified and they're really not worth anything. And so he tells them how much they're worth. And the people are like, screw it, keep them. And he like takes them and he told me like he sometimes like donates them to like, uh, you know, um, daycares and things like that. But it was like, like up to the ceiling stacks of Beanie Babies and like knockoff Beanie Babies. And like it was it was crazy. That's insane. Yeah. All right. So with the box that we just found at my mom's house, we know exactly where to go. You got a box at your mom's house? Yeah, we just we just pulled them all out for the for my nieces like mm-hmm. in the summer last year. They're probably not worth anything, so just let your nieces play with them. No, there's some of the McDonald's ones that are still in like the little packages. I'm sure those are worth the least. Yeah, yeah, probably <laughs> because they mass produced them. So. <laughs> I assume so. But oh. uh, so Roy, but Roy knows what he's talking about when he talks about about uh, lucha and tapes and stuff like that. Uh, he's not doesn't doesn't strike me as the beanie baby guy. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, yeah, I learned so much. I knew nothing about this world going into it. And I normally try and do a decent amount of research in advance to get an idea of um, what's going on, what these uh, topics are we're hitting. And this one, I just went in blind. I was like, I want to learn. I want to, I want to learn from an expert on all of these things because it, it's a lot. Uh, Here's our talk with uh, Roy Lusher. And we're back, everybody. And we are here with Roy Lusher. And Roy, I see behind you and like the kid in me has so many questions. But my first question is going to be the adult slash parent in me because you have a you have a kid, right? Yeah, he's uh, about to turn 19. He's actually in the Air Force out in Panama City. Oh, okay. So your kid's a little bit older. So my son is 11. I have an 11 year old and an eight year old. How did you explain to him as a kid that he couldn't touch or open any of the toys? In your room, you get his own, <laughs> you get his own and you let him know, Hey, dad has his own collection. And these are very collectible and very like worth a lot of money. In mm. fact, at the time we were at our old apartment in Folsom and I actually had him hanging on the living room wall because I didn't have my own um, room yet. Like we had a two bedroom there when we bought our home here in Sacramento in July, the only caveat to my wife was, Hey, uh, let's get a three bedroom. Uh, my son being in the air force, he's got his own room. If he decides to, he's in for six years, but when he comes home or whatever, he's got his room here over there's our bedroom. And then here's my own room. And my <laughs> wife was absolutely cool with it because she was tired of seeing all the wrestling figures and all, you know, surrounding all the walls and stuff like that. But right. Know, she's like, those aren't, those aren't home decor for the living room. <laughs> we'll, keep, yeah. we'll keep your own little cave of all your your figures. That's awesome. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and she's fine with it. She goes to shows with me. She's friends with a lot of the guys. She has a great time. Obviously, before our relationship, she had no clue who Jun Akiyama or Jushin Thunder Liger is. And you know, now, you know, when they're in town, you know, like like Liger, it's just, you know, funny to 
uh, stay at the same airport or a hotel as him and get to hang out with him and stuff like that. She had no clue who any of these people were before, you know, getting in a relationship with me. But now it's, you know, she she's happy that, you know, at least a, you know, wrestling, there's really, really nothing wrong with, with a hobby in wrestling, you know, mm-hmm. not uh, Walter White, you know, cooking meth or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did, um, so did she start eventually watching wrestling or did she just know everybody as your friends and then kind of like, Oh, there they are on TV. Um, I think that took a little bit over time because like I would go to shows. I mean, I like WWE was in town and I would take my son, take her son to the shows and stuff like that because we wanted his first shows to be what he was seeing on TV. Later we, um, uh, she was like a big fan of Joey Ryan, my wife, and there was a local show. Uh, Marcus Mack was running all pro wrestling after Roland Alexander passed away, and it was like Joey Ryan, Zach Saber Jr., uh, P- Pentagon, and Cody Rhodes was the main event. And I'm like, hey, would you guys like to go to one of the, the smaller shows? These are the ones that I'm more familiar with because this is what I grew up with and stuff. And, you know, we, she went, he went, and they were such a big fan of just the atmosphere, the meet and greets beforehand, getting to meet the wrestlers and stuff. And, you know, over time, like when I went to Mexico City last year, it was like Juventud Guerrero picked us up at the airport, had dinner. Uh, so yeah, a lot of these people are just, you know, it, it's, it's like a big family and stuff. And with, well, there's some in the air force, if any of the boys are in town, there's a, that guest bedroom to stay in the meantime. That, that's pretty awesome. Um, so we just talked about your son's first house show. Talk us, walk us through your first show that you went to. Uh, my first show would be in uh, 1985. It was at the Anaheim Convention Center. It was Corporal Kirshner and Nikolai Volkov was the main event. Ooh, so it was a B show. Yeah, uh, Anaheim Convention Center, I mean, they had a lot of TV tapings there. And, you know, they would run house shows once every month or once every two months there. Uh, it wasn't as big as the Los Angeles Sports Arena, which was about 30 miles away. Anaheim was literally one city away because I grew up in Garden Grove, California. Uh, the biggest thing about Garden Grove is Sublime has a song uh, <laughs> called Garden Grove. So that's how most people know it. But Garden Grove is like right in the center of like Anaheim, Santa Ana, Huntington Beach. Uh, we had the... Um, down at the beach, we had that uh, the ring set up WCW ran bash at the beach there in 95 with Hogan and Vader in the cage. So, oh, I mean, I really lucked out in the fact that I, I just was born and raised in a really nice area where there was a lot of historical wrestling. You know, I've been to WrestleMania 2, 7, 12, 16, but on top of the WrestleManias, I've been to the Peace Festivals, the AAA shows that happened in Los Angeles. Compton used to run wrestling every Friday night at a little place called Zalone Zacatecano, and we had Rey Mysterio Jr. before he became a big name and, you know, uh, got my car and I would drive to shows all over town, even out to Vegas for some of the big shows out there over the years in Tijuana. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of wrestling in SoCal. I lived in San Diego for five years and got to see some of the indie stuff there. And that's kind of where I really got into a lot of the indie stuff. Cause I was watching these like bar wrestling shows and then got to expand and go out to the, the other stuff. Yeah, so San Diego's San Diego was a hotbed for sure, and especially if you you know cross your fingers and hope everything will be okay crossing the border and going to Tijuana for all those big shows that would happen every Friday or every other Friday and stuff at the Auditorio. I mean, those were just 
amazing times in the nineties and two thousands. Yeah, man. No, I wasn't a, I wasn't a Tijuana, <laughs> a little too nervous <laughs> to go to Tijuana. I would get down to the outlets there, <laughs> right there at the border and be like, I got to turn around. <laughs> a tip for anyone going into Tijuana, once everything, you know, is cool and opens up or whatever, park your car at the border, take an Uber and never drive your car into Mexico. Because if your car gets lost, trust me, you're never getting it back. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's a, those outlets right there. That last exit with a big last exit <laughs> before Mexico yep. sign. <laughs> Why were those outlets so good? What was there? No, I mean, not necessarily outlets. I mean, I would go down there just because there was an outlet mall. <laughs> it was an outlet mall. Mm. Um, but it's right there on the border. Like it's outlets and then it's the border. Mm-hmm. So that's just, it was just the easiest place to park. People would park there and walk over. Mm-hmm. So, wow. Yeah. That sounds, that's all foreign to me. <laughs> Where are you at right now, by the way? I'm in New Jersey. Oh, okay. Got it. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. And I'm in Baltimore now. I'm actually flying out there next month. A friend of mine's getting married uh, in the middle of May and nice. he asked me to be one of his best men. Um, he used to wrestle as Chad Austin. He was an ECW wrestler. I remember him. Stone Cold Chad Austin. He would come out with the, with the Bud, Budweiser belt. It was like around when, obviously, Steve Austin was doing the whole uh, ringmaster gimmick and coming out with the million dollar belt. So, right. Yeah, I flew out to Baltimore for his wedding. So that's awesome. So how do you how did you start and maintain all of these friendships with wrestlers? So back in '92, I had a well. I mean, growing up, I, my parents had that huge twenty five foot satellite dish in the backyard. So. Mm. Uh, <laughs> my dad got the illegal stuff. So we watched all the pay-per-views and, you know, my dad was cool with me having all the friends over and we would have like pay-per-view parties and all that stuff. I went to a show at Anaheim convention center, in March of 1992. And I remember sitting up on top and there was a guy sitting next to me who's reading this thing that was like about wrestling, but it had no pictures inside of it. And I was 17 at the time. And I looked over and I go, Hey, what are you reading? What are you reading? He's all, it's called the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. And he let me look at it. And it was like, my mind was just opened up. It was mm-hmm. insane. Like what this was to me, because it wasn't trying to, oh, I'm sorry, my laptop just uh, froze. Up. Oh, I thought it was one of the figures we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> like, is that oh. Alexa? <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I'm selling one of my old laptops and I did a reboot on it. So it started talking on its own. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so I was sitting next to the guy, he pulls out this thing called the wrestling observer newsletter. Obviously my mind's blown. It's like, wow, I was reading it and it didn't try to pretend it was real, but it wasn't trying to put it down either. So I contacted Meltzer that night, got my own subscription. And when I talked to Dave, he's like, Oh, I told him I had a satellite dish and he's like, well, if you have a satellite dish, uh, put it on these channels at this time and you could watch like other wrestling, like indie promotions and Lucha Libre, especially. Now we have Galavision uh, on uh, regular channel 22 in Los Angeles, but he was telling me about like other stations on the satellite dish to watch it earlier. And like, instead of the hour version, a 90 minute or two hour version on the satellite dish. So I started video record, videotaping that, and then also Meltzer put out an issue of the Observer like a month or two after and says, if you live anywhere near these places, these places get Japanese wrestling videotapes. And me being in Garden Grove, he listed Anaheim, Stanton, and, and Costa Mesa as these like uh, Japanese stores that had the weekly videotapes. So I remember being 17 year old, years old driving over to the video stores. Lo and behold, I mean, I didn't understand, speak a lick of it, but I would you know go up to the people, hey, uh, and they would actually like show me which ones were 
all Japan pro wrestling, new Japan pro wrestling, all Japan women. And after time, I, I recognize it to the point where I didn't even need to ask them anymore. Go home, call friends over. We would all watch the women, the FMW, all Japan, new Japan. And I would record that as well with two VCRs. So over time, I started the Lucha the Japan and I would put ads back in the day. Meltzer used to have this thing in the back of the observer called the readers page where you would list what you had and what you were looking for. So I would put in there, I have the newest Lucha nobody has cause I have a satellite dish. I have the weekly Japanese tapes. Uh, they would show up in my Japanese wrestling stores or the, the, the marketplaces three, four days after they aired. So I would have these less than a week after they aired on TV and people would be calling me like, you know, Hey, I need to get this or whatever. And a, a few of them were wrestlers, you know, like there, there's, there was a lot of wrestlers back in the day who used to get tapes from me and uh, ask for best of and stuff like that. So uh, Chad Austin was one of them. And that's how we maintained our friendship over the years. Uh, fast forward to about 10 years ago, I started getting phone calls from people like, Hey, do you still do the video cassette thing? And I'm like, well, um, yeah. They're like, well, I need, I have an entire collection here. Do you want to transfer it over to DVD and have what's on them? And I'm like, wow. So I would call up Chad, told him what's going on. And Chad has like 15 VHS to DVD converters. So I would mail him 50 to hundred videotapes at a time. He would convert them over to DVD and send them to me. So over the, for the last eight to 10 years now, Chad and I have probably, I mean, like, um, Mike Tanate gave me his entire VHS collection, which had like 15, 1600 videotapes in it. We converted everything to DVD. I mean, there were some insane gems on there. And the thing is, Tanay taped everything from 1991 to 2008 before he, you know, stopped just like, collecting it. So, I mean, I just th tens of like thousands of, of DVDs here. And as, um, I have a, a multiple up, uh, YouTube channels. I would upload all these uh, videos whenever WWE doesn't own them, by the way. I'm not trying to get in trouble with them. I would right. put them up on YouTube and share them with the world and not even monetize them or, you know, charge people, whatever. Just, you know, this, this is fun for me. I love doing it. Wow. So as we were getting into this interview initially, and he was telling me you were coming on, this whole phenomenon of this tape trading was just completely foreign to me. I had no wow. idea this existed. Can you just explain for our listeners that may not know what this is, just kind of how this started or, or what the process of this normally is? Okay, so in the late 70s, the VHS and the Betamax uh, machines were created. The thing is they allowed you to record what was ever on TV. There was an actual lawsuit from the TV people because they wanted that feature stopped while a uh, federal judge or superior court ruled that they had no power to do that. Uh, so people just kept recording. Now you would, it, you would find people in other, other areas that were recording like territories and stuff. And the observer was the biggest thing, by the way, as far as making connections, like mm. if you talk to John McAdam, he was in the Boston area and he could tape like certain federations there. And then you would talk to like the Florida area and you would have Barry Rose there who would tape whatever was there. You go to mid South, you would have people that would tape the TV there, uh, central States, all these different areas and stuff like that. And you would just make connections and you would have one tape. That was the master. You would buy two VHS tapes 
uh, machines and you would put a blank in and record it in real time, send it to the person. And that person in the other area would send you what they saw on their TV. Because at the time cable wasn't like the national phenomenon that it became in like the mid eighties. Like you would get a, a UHS station that would show maybe world-class or some, some other kind of promotion and you just you would read the after mags or something, and you would see these other promotions like Memphis, Mid South, uh, Florida. How can I get my hands on these? And you would go around make these connections, get these huge freaking long distance phone bills. That's one thing I'm happy about with cellular phones today is the no charges for long distance anymore. And you would make the connections. Hey, I'll send you this if you could send me this and. Uh, it just, it blew up. I got into it at about 92. And when I stopped in 96, I must've had 8,000 tapes total. I think was the last count. It was like all Japan, all Mexico, all, um, indie promotions at the time I was really in the mindset. Like I want to get everything that was ever recorded, but you know, it's just over time with so many different promotions and so much out there, you just realize that isn't realistic, but Tape trading, you know, I actually posted this on Twitter. I go, besides pro wrestling, what other areas and genres have the biggest uh, tape trading markets out there? And everyone was saying the biggest two would be horror films and porn, as far as the two where uh, people were doing a lot of trades and stuff like that to get what they were looking for. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's funny because the more I think about it, like this couldn't have been a cheap thing to do because no. back then like video vhs was like a blank one was like ten dollars vcrs were super expensive i mean like uh, mailing how much did it cost to mail a tape back then you can mail three tapes for six bucks um, oh okay but i mean like that still kind of adds up you're right you're right the tapes is what it got expensive you mm -hmm. know you would really want to when you're doing a tape trade not uh do something that would you, you don't want to buy the cheap tape that you get the 99 cent store and then someone sends you a Memorex or a quality tape and then that mm. person's going to remember that for the cheap quality and not do business with you in the future. Mm. Um, somewhere around here, I have a catalog as someone sent to me that I gave to them in 94, 95 and it was like 16 bucks for one tape, 30 for two, three for 45, something like that and like 12 tapes for 100 bucks uh, because I like obviously the more tapes, the, the cheaper it would be or whatever. But I mean, I was making as much with my uh, tape trading thing that I was at my real job at the time inside of a factory. I mean, I, I was really doing that good. Now, and then I would just turn around, flip it, and then buy more blank tapes and do trades with people and stuff like that. So I, I wasn't a, a smart business person per se, but man, I just, all the stuff that I was getting and seeing at the time was just incredible. What were some of the more like sought after matches or people that people will? We're always looking for super J cup. That was the, that was really the big one. The super J cup, new Japan, uh, April 16th, 1994. When that first happened, it was unbelievable. The buzz from it. And, you know, I got a lot of letters and people that were like, Hey, uh, cause I had two different ones. I had the commercial tape when it came out a month after it happened. And then the TV version, which came out a week and a half after it happened. I remember getting so many phone calls all that. I must've made over a thousand bucks off that one event alone. Mm -hmm. It was just insane how what, what the buzz was. And then the second Super J Cup happened in uh, December 95. And I got the like a handheld of it a couple days after it happened for, directly from Japan. And uh, then the commercial tape came out. And I mean, this, 
especially with Ray and Psychosis, you know, having their little match on it and stuff like that, that really got a huge buzz at the time. But those are probably always going to be the two ones that always stand out just because it was something different. And it just, it had this like crazy buzz around it that I can't explain, but it, it was great at the time. When, when you had wrestlers approaching you about the tapes, was it more because they were fans or did they want to watch what other guys were doing from around the world or? Um, sometimes they wanted to study the people that they were about to wrestle. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the wrestler themselves did not have any of their stuff. So for example, and this is going to sound like name dropping here, but I just want to throw the example out. Mm-hmm. Um, hold on. Hey, stop. Um, <sighs> February 1996, a friend of mine calls me up and he's like, hey, uh, my friend Chris Jericho is, is, is staying over here. Do you want to come meet him? I'm like, wait, what? Because I already I knew who Chris Jericho was. So I drove down to Costa Mesa with a couple friends at the time. And we went over to my friend's house. Um, he used to, my friend Martin Marin, he used to run a promotion in Anaheim at the marketplace. And he knew Jericho from when he was in Mexico, when he was Corazon de Leon. Uh, Jericho was going to be in town because he was doing an Ozzy Osbourne concert, his first one that month. And as, as a agreement, he was also going to work a show in Compton and all nation center around that time. I met Jericho and Martin explained to him, Oh, this is who the boys go for, for the tapes. And he was like, wait, you have Mexico tapes. I'm like, yeah, he's like, I have none of my stuff. So that night I went and I did a custom tape of like two tapes worth of all of Jericho's matches just from CMLL one after another onto these tapes to give to him. Um, Benoit hit me up once and he's like, Hey, I'm going to wrestle. So-and-so I, I really don't know that much about the person. Can you make a comp tape for me about some of their matches just so I can prepare to get in the ring with them and stuff like that. So, I mean, there was always different angles, you know, as far as like why the boys wanted the tapes, but you know, it was, it was always, uh, always rewarding, you know, to get to talk to them about it later. You know, it's just crazy to me that like you were, you went and met with Chris Jericho and he's like, Hey, can you get me a tape of all my stuff? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then when I met him so many years later, uh, it was two years ago. It was the first all or, uh, what was it called? Double or nothing. That first AEW show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I ran across him and I hadn't seen him in 24 years and I told him, Hey, I'm the one that made you all the CMLL tapes. And he just like completely, Oh my God, I remember that and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was funny was he did a, a autograph for me. There's a photo of me, Benoit, Jericho, and Jim Neidhart at the Peace Festival in Los Angeles, and he signed it like, screw you, Roy, on it, Chris Jericho. <laughs> and I showed it to him. He's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And he gave me an autograph that day, and he signed it again, screw you, Roy, Chris <laughs> Jericho. You know? It's very on brand. <laughs> <laughs> Is there still a market for the actual tapes, not the, the matches themselves? Like, do people still want the tapes? You know, like, for a while, like – um Cassette tapes kind of came back. Do people still want the actual VHS tapes? Um, I, 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 I've seen some people here and there like, because when Chad's done with the tapes, he gives them to somebody who stores them. And I always get a lot of messages from people, you know, at least twice a week, like, hey, what are you guys doing with these VHS tapes when you're done? Um, and Chad, you know, lets them know like they're, I'm, so I'm sure there's a market for them. Uh, and I, I occasionally look on eBay and type in like, you know, video cassettes and stuff. And 99% of it is like old clamshell WWF, WCW, old AWA type stuff or whatever. But occasionally you'll see something someone taped off a of TV. So I know there's a market for it. Uh, I, I just, 
I, I, I couldn't imagine with you, you need to have like acres of land in order to like really <laughs> store a lot of uh, VHS tape somewhere for sure. Good stuff. You're going to say something. I was going to say, well, is it so like you were showing all those DVDs, are people seeking out that or are they looking yes. more for like the, the MP4 like video files or is it still something physical that they want to have? Physical for sure. Um, I mean, I've gotten a lot of requests from people like, Hey, I'm so-and-so with so-and-so. I really need this video. Can you help me out? You know, I have no problem sending a Google drive to somebody. Um, Chad, when he's done with the, with the discs or whatever, you know, he's got a little side gig where he tries to make a few bucks. Obviously it's nowhere like it was back in the day when it's 16 bucks, a, a VHS tape. I mean, you know, you can find them for depending on who you go through three to eight bucks for a disc. I mean, the, there's still, there's a couple big heavy hitters out there that have transferred their VHS tapes to DVDs and sell them by a DVD that still make a living doing it on the down low. Uh, someone in Pittsburgh and someone in New York, uh, they've gotten legal letters from uh, big companies, which is why I'm not saying their names, but uh, yeah, there's people out there who still make a living uh, doing it for sure. What was it like when you realized, oh God, DVDs are going to be the future and now I have to move everything over from VHS to DVD? <laughs> It, it was kind of sad because um, Chad goes to transfer the tape and he'll call me up and go, Hey, this certain tape here. And I knew it was something like super rare that I know no one ever had. Like I had this VHS tape of this stuff called Pinoy wrestling. It was from the Philippines from 1992 and Meltzer did a review of it once and said that there was a uh, interview, a promo where someone literally bit the head off of a live chicken on TV and I actually recorded it uh, off the VHS or off the satellite dish. And Chad calls me up and he's like, hey, that Pinoy thing that you sent me, it, it, the, it's so bad. The, the tracking's bad. I can't even get it to record. And it's like, it's heartbreaking knowing some of these ain't going to record or work no matter what you do. Mm -hmm. you know, and you're just knowing your heart, there's going to be a piece of history that's lost. L luckily enough, that's like, 0.1% of it, 99.9. Everything's transferred over and everything's been well. Mm -hmm. You know, you just always hope that it's some SmackDown or Thunder or something that WWE owns where that tapes, you know, is going to be the one that screws up and not something super rare. But um, yeah, I just, I'd, I'd rather have all these, like, you know, this is 100 discs right here. And to think about the storage room, if it was a, a VHS, <laughs> you know, it's, it would, uh, fill up a whole corner. That's just a hundred. So, is yeah, there really. any? Oh, Steph, are you going to ask? No, I was saying, yeah, really. You need like a whole storage unit just to to store. I'm sure people have those too that did that too. Would just kind of like rent out their own storage unit and kind of use that as their space to keep all the tapes. Yeah, um, there's a guy, uh, Ron Head. Um, I don't know if either you heard of him. He was the one that recorded the. You ever heard of the Jim Cornette Dairy Queen incident? Uh, I'm vaguely familiar, but if you want to talk about it. Okay, so uh, Jim Cornette used to have these things in Smoky Mountain called Smoky Mountain Fan Weeks where uh, they would put you up in a hotel, you would pay X amount, and they would take you to, like, the biggest shows of, of their of the week. I think it was a week or two or whatever. So Ron Head went to a couple of these, and he uh, later became the announcer for OVW because of his connections to Jim Cornette. Well, uh, Ron Head was in the back seat of a of the vehicle, and it was like Cornette in the front seat. Jericho was in the back seat, and there was a couple other people in the car, maybe D. Brown or something. And they're going through a Dairy Queen, and the thing is like 
it was like 1130 at night and the boys were hungry. So Cornette orders like something like 50 of their meals, like the biggest burgers, biggest drinks, whatever gets up to the window and the lady like, Oh wait, I thought you were kidding or something like that because of like the time and whatever. And Cornette goes on this tirade, like calling her every name in the book. Mm-hmm. And it, it, the tape started making the rounds. Like Ron had really got it around mm-hmm. to the point where like the following week, um, Cornette was like doing house shows because he was managing um, Owen and Yoko at the time in WWF and fans were chanting like Dairy Queen at him so I mean the tape was really starting to get around mm. well, Ron Head calls me up and he's like hey I got a friend who's got a basement in, in uh, Pittsburgh who um, has like tens of thousands of VHS tapes and if you want them he can send them to you so I contacted the dude we ended up working something out and Jesus that was a that took years to get all those transferred, but you know, you, you really got to store them. If you got some VHS tapes sitting around, please make sure that they're not like sitting around and burnt 110 degree Lake Havasu city, Arizona weather or whatever. Cause they got to be somewhere damp, you know, cool. Cause they will burn out for sure. Are there any, uh, before I ask if there was like any sought after matches and stuff, are there any sought after like segments that people are really looking for? Like, I feel like a lot of times in my head, I'll go, I swear I was watching wrestling back in 1987 and this thing happened, but I can't find it anywhere. Like, do people ever come to you with that kind of stuff? Back in the days, it was mostly the McGee match, like the Tom McGee-Bret Hart match. Yeah. Okay. Everyone swore to God they had it or had seen it. Yeah. Where it was like a legend, you know, and obviously years later, you know, it, it you heard Colt Cabana talking about it and you realize like, there's gotta be something about this. And then I would go see, you know, Meltzer at local shows and he's like, I know I have it somewhere. I know I've seen it, but I don't remember making copies for anybody. So mm-hmm. the, the, the Hart McGee one is probably always going to be the biggest, like as far as like what people were looking for uh, segments. Um, there was a Don Morocco have a donut interview that took place in 84 or 85 so the the thing is, it was one of those like local promos where Gene Okerlund was talking and would bring the wrestlers in. It was for local TV. I don't know what market this was, right. but I got so many requests. Like, do you have the Don Morocco have a donut interview? Morocco comes in with Fuji and Mr. Fuji and Don Morocco goes, you know, there are just times of the day when, you just need to relax and uh, you need to do something and then you need to eat and then you need to do need to have a donut. And he pulls out a box of donuts and he starts eating like jelly donuts. <laughs> Is that Sabu? Was that Sabu? Oh, okay. He starts eating jelly donuts and talking with his mouth full. <laughs> and it's so funny. <laughs> I, I, it's got to be somewhere up on YouTube right now because I know, like, uh, crazy enough, WWE may have a lot of those videotapes, but, but apparently they don't have localized promos. Like, those only got sent to the local markets, mm-hmm. and they don't have, like, this, like, um, database of localized promos. That's insane. So, yeah, a lot of the localized promos, a lot of, a lot of stuff that people remember from their area, um, uh, anything Steamboat Savage cage after mm. Steamboat won the Intercontinental title, they had these cage matches like at Nassau and places like that, and they did promos for that. People are always looking for videos of that too, and I don't recall it ever being on TV, but the promos were on TV, so mm. uh, stuff like that, you know, was always the stuff people were looking for. 
Do you think there's a potential? I've never really thought about this before until you you kind of mentioned it. So there's the WWE, there was the WWE network, and then they go to Peacock. And so everything goes over to there and all of the stuff that they own. Do you think there's a potential to make a network of all the stuff that WWE does not own? No, probably not because just the, the, the button heads. I mean, you, you got several, like over the years, people have tried, you had, um, uh, Bruce Thorpe, uh, or oh, what's the, God, the smashing pumpkins guy, uh, Billy Corgan, Billy Corgan. Mm-hmm. you know, they, they tried all they could to do the NWA, uh, network mm-hmm. and, um, I just say it didn't do, it didn't do good numbers and they really tried to get other collections into there and it was just people just asking for extraordinary amounts or whatever it you know there are people i think people a lot of people just hold on to the collections just open down the line that you know wwe is gonna um give them enough to buy a home in hawaii like what they did with the uh world class uh, mm-hmm. footage or whatever you know like they kevin von Eric got enough out of that to buy his like dream home in 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 uh in Kauai. so yeah people are just hoping down the line that, you know, the collection's worth that much or something. Because what bothers me. And I mean, this is all, I'm not, I'm not talking Peacock. I'm talking pre Peacock with the WWE network. What bothers me is like, so as a kid, I grew up watching, I mean, I grew up watching a lot of stuff, but the AWA was on a lot on ESPN and I kind of want to go back and watch it. And the only AWA stuff they had on the network was like only stuff that involved people who eventually became WWE stars. So they had like Shawn Michaels, Razor Ramon, Kurt Henning, that kind of stuff. But like, if I want to, I just want to go watch a random AWA match from 1982. Like you have the entire library. Why aren't you just throwing it up there? Yeah. And, um, Oh, geez. Uh, I had somebody that, uh, we were messaging each other for a while and he was telling me if I had known that the network was not going to show certain shows, I don't think I would have ever sold the collection to them because they were like really upset that, you know, over a decade later you go on there and there's absolutely nothing from uh, that certain promotion that was really up on the network. You know, they wanted it to be seen. So stuff that was sold that just wasn't used on the network. Wow. But is it from promotions that they have some stuff on the network, but WWE just didn't use this stuff or is it something that, okay. So they only, okay. And, and you think it'll never see the light of day. Yeah. They'll never see the light of day from them. That's, you know, if if they were so easy and like, I I get it. If you're offered a billion dollars for a four-year contract, what's going to happen when that four years is up, where are they going to go next? And what other rules are they going to put on the next, uh, network that, uh, they do a deal with like certain things that can't go up or, you know, they're getting reamed right now, uh, by the internet over, the removal of like the bad news Piper, Mr. T Piper, you know, a lot of those segments and stuff like that. And, you know, it's what else is going to happen over time, you know, like um, where certain stuff back then, I mean, back then you had good guys and you had bad guys for a Mm -hmm. reason. The bad guys would do everything that they could to be bad in order to get the good guys to, um, you hate them. And remember the interview with Captain Albano and Cindy Lauper where Albano is like sitting here saying, all women belong in the kitchen, barefoot and pregnant and stuff like that. What if down, I mean, he did that to get hated. 
Mm-hmm. Now, what if someone on the new network or even on Peacock sees that and deems that as offensive and that never sees the light of day? I mean, it's just it's crazy over time what's starting to be deemed as offensive and you can't you can't show it anymore and stuff like that. And that that's yeah. a huge fear, you know, it's like as far as a wrestling fan. I mean, people said and did things to be hated for a reason. Right. So I just um I'm I'm not liking the direction. So uh, you know, you're going to see a lot of people on the, on the download, on the underground that are, you know, buying trading and, and stuff like that for sure. For a lot of the programs and shows that didn't make it up on the network that WWE does own. Yeah. Yeah. You're right there. I mean, there is a slippery slope to it. Like one thing that I was thinking about the other day. So look, I get the blackface thing is, is terrible and should not have been done. It was part of an angle. It happened, but I was watching an old WCW uh, clash of the champions and there was the Southern boys. And they had on jackets with the Confederate flag on it. Okay, well, yes, that's offensive to people now. But are you going to just take that whole match out because they came to the ring in Confederate jackets? Like yeah. the Freebirds used to wear Confederate free stuff. Birds. Yeah, the Freebirds too, especially. It's like yeah. they had this new figure that came out WWE or Mattel or Hasbro or whoever makes them. Uh, being a figure collector, I'm surprised I don't know that perfectly, but uh, <laughs> it was like a Michael Hayes, early 80s, Bad Street uniform. And it was like there was no Confederate flag on it. I'm just like, come on, this isn't realistic. And, you know, I, I get why, but it's like you're dealing with an era where Dukes of Hazard was a big thing with the kids. And back then, it wasn't offensive to see mm-hmm. that it was it was associated with the south and dukes of hazard and things yeah. like that um did you hear about the johnny b bad um brian pillman match that got uh edited as well even back on the network no so i think it was great american bash 91 i could be off on the pay-per-view but in the beginning Pillman looked in the camera and goes, his name isn't Johnny B. Bad. It's Johnny B. Gay. And um, WWE literally edited out and claimed that the footage is like destroyed or lost or something like that. You're, you're like, okay, really? For a 30-year-old pay-per-view? I mean, come on. And then people like, I think it was Russell Botch or Botchamania or something like that spliced in like what the real footage was or something. And you understood why it was taken out. But it was just like, you know, it, it's... Uh, he and Pillman was the heel, by the way. So of course, he, they always are. <laughs> like, it's not. Uh, I mean, we could go on and on about this. Forever, I know. I know. know. I mean, it's it's all about like what you find offensive. Also, the one thing that I always think about. So we'll take the Bash of the Beach example. It's not like WWE is showing that on the network and that's their feature thing that's on at eight o'clock for everybody to watch. Like you kind of have to go digging for it. And if you go digging that far and you're going into a pay-per-view to 1991, you're probably like, okay, there's probably going to be some things in here that were okay in 1991, but they're not now. It's not like that just happened on a pay-per-view a month ago. You know, and and what what is it Disney does nowadays with the whole, um, if there was a cartoon or TV show that isn't, up to today's standards, they put a little disclaimer before or they have Whoopi Goldberg do this little speech before yeah. saying, you know, whatever. Why don't you just do that with that? I mean, and, and give the explanation. It's, it's yeah, I don't know. Well, let's move on to uh, more fun things. We were talking about your figures before, but Ooh. so how did you get into the Lucha collecting? Okay. So I grew up a LJN fan. So okay. Christmas 84, 
I remember the wrestles coming out. My parents, I was 10 years old and asking for the figures and Santa brought all the LJN figures. He's right behind me. Macho man. I, I get a comment on that a lot. Steph's kind of <laughs> tired of hearing it that I get comments on it so much. No, never. So I did everything I could to collect all the LJN figures and I opened them and played with them. And uh, the, those, those brought a lifetime of memories. I really, you know, I, I had my own figure federation, but in my federation, the figures weren't, I wasn't having Hulk Hogan fight Andre the Giant. I gave each figure a different name and I had my own promotion with them and stuff like that. Uh, lo and behold, I hit 16 LJN stops. Hasbro comes in and I'm at the age where it's like, wow, these are actually starting to be worth money. Especially when I look in the magazines and I'm seeing the black card Ultimate Warrior Rick Rude in the back going for, you know, 50, 100 bucks. So I'm realizing these are starting to have some worth to them. So I started collecting all the Hasbros, except I didn't open these and I saved them all, whatever. Um, lo and behold, fast forward two years, it's uh, 1992 uh, and CMLL is on my radar because of the, um, the, the TV show. Now, of course, I dropped my glasses. Um, as I'm going to Lucha shows, I'm seeing that these figures exist. And let me grab one one second. Sure. So CML works with uh, San Francisco official toy, what's official San Francisco toy maker, and they come out with a line of figures that has six figures in it. Mm -hmm. So they have Vampiro from WCW, mm -hmm. later WCW at the they time, Vampiro, and they also have Atlantis, Ultimo Dragon, Lismark, Ryle de Jalisco, and um, uh, Pierrot. Uh, as a part of the group, they were actually supposed to make a series two with some other figures on here uh, listed, but uh, the promoter Antonio Pena uh, left and created his own promotion, AAA. Mm -hmm. uh, fast forward a year and a half, uh, Antonio Pena works with a company called Hag, H A G, and they make a line of figures called the Kellyans. Kellyan only existed for this one line of figures so kellyan releases 12 figures they including the rookie figure of Rey mysterio jr and uh psychosis and i remember when i would go to tijuana or uh friends of mine would go down there i'd always ask them to pick up the figures if they saw them there's 12 figures in the set three of them were short run Ray, Psychosis, and Mascara Sagrada. If you could find those, it was like 50 to 100 bucks, you know, to get them or whatever. Years later, I ended up getting the whole set. And then on top of that, I actually have them autographed, 11 of the 12. The only one I don't is Paraguayo, who passed away. Uh, over years, 2007, 2008, we actually also have... Um, CML made more figures in 2007. The ring up here... AAA Photorama made some in 2007, got some lunch boxes here. It's just um, so many people out there, and I, I respect and love what Matt Cardona and Brian Myers do, but their focus is formally WWF, WWE figures. Mm -hmm. well, I, I love Lucha. I've loved it since I first started watching in 1990 and heavily in 1992. So, I just want to be that, you know, representative and do all I can to, you know, someone comes to me and goes, Hey, I know nothing about the figures. Well, try to give them as much of a rundown as I can of them. Where were they? Were they available? Like 
in all different types of stores? Were they only in toy stores? Like, where can you find those back then? So in 1992, it's odd. I remember talking to um, Corey Graves at uh, a show and I had the Ray with me because I was trying to get it autographed. And he was telling me a story about how him and his brother, um, Sam Adonis, uh, were actually went to a pharmacy in Pittsburgh in 92 and would see the CMLL figures there. So it was weird how mass produced they were and what kind of distribution that they were getting at the time. Uh, the AAA figures, I'd never seen them for sale in the United States, except if you went to the AAA shows in Los Angeles, San Jose, or San Diego. Oddly enough, about three, four years ago, somebody opened up a warehouse in Anaheim or Westminster, and they found uh, the location for all the AAA Kellyan figures that when AAA didn't, when they went back and forth between the United States and America, they left all the merchandise in a warehouse because they didn't want to uh, drag it back and forth and drive it or fly it or whatever. So someone found the warehouse with like thousands of figures in there, and he actually like went on eBay and uh sold them and stuff like that it was it was a crazy find yeah wow. yeah that's, am that's amazing yeah it's, it's insane I, I i'm still trying to figure out how they ended up like getting distribution to a drugstore in pittsburgh <laughs> like how a, how a mexican wrestling federation i mean it had to have i guess maybe got shoehorned in with another deal for another product that they were selling like maybe the toys like did the, the did the manufacturers make other toys and maybe they're just like all right and we're also in pharmacies and we could put them in too. I don't know, but it's weird. Okay, so San Francisco original toy makers. I mean, they they are and were a big deal because later they made the WCW figures. Right. I don't know what they were doing pre nineteen ninety two, but all I could think was it had to be a part of some kind of maybe there was another toy that came out with it and they sent it along a case of them too. Hmm. Well, that's I, I don't know. It's crazy. I got to think about that. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Um, one thing that I always think about, especially when it comes to figures. So I was a huge fan growing up. I was I liked WWF, -E, whatever it was, but I was more attracted to NWA, WCW. And I yeah. always think about the money and the possibilities left on the table for the mid 80s to late 80s when they never like I think Remco made a couple, but they made AWA. Yeah, but they never made there was no NWA toys, merchandise, nothing. They never did anything. I think the whole thing with that was there was two lines of thought. Number one, we don't want to be the kids promotion that, that caters toward kids. So they purposely left it off the table. So, you know, we, we concentrate on our wrestling, not all this other stuff, which they just, they, they, they screwed the pooch on that. Later, they had those Galoop figures from 1990 that were like plastic. They had like the flare art. What's crazy are those UK exclusive ones like El Gigante, Big Josh, Dustin Rhodes, and mm. the Sting and the Luger in the other gears and stuff like that. And uh, uh, the PM News prototype that came out. I mean, it's it's amazing. Like how, how does a company have this one line and then there's an exclusive that's only available to this small portion of the world? You know, it, I'll never understand that. And wow, you know. Yeah, especially because they were connected to a much bigger entity, Turner Sports or Turner, you know, yeah. like, it's a bit, it wasn't like it was just WCW was its own thing and they maybe didn't have the time or the manpower to think about it. But like Turner was a huge conglomerate at the time and no one ever thought to like go because didn't Turner do uh, was it Captain Planet? Then they do their own TV show slash yeah. kind of thing. So like there's people internally who are like, OK, well, there's marketing and merchandising to be made. 
Like, why doesn't someone think about WCW? It wasn't until like they really exploded with NWO and stuff that things really started to come out. Yeah. Um, I don't know, it's not like they weren't geared toward kids in some some sense of fashion when you had like right. ding dongs and yeah, yeah. Or, or when they had the candy man who would just come out and throw candy to the kids in the crowd. It's like, oh, why wouldn't you have figures that the kids could then buy? <laughs> like, I yeah. don't it's it's crazy. Yeah. And you know, it's like nowadays, you know, the first thing when you have Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus is you're like, Well, this is so for the kids, you know, boy and his dinosaur or whatever, and all the possibilities that can go with it. And it's like back then you look and it was like, How was nothing ever made other than what the trading cards, the Wonderama ones in '88? You know, mm. just so much money left off the table, and it was like, what were they thinking at the time? Yeah. You you touched on AEW right there. I mean it feels like the AEW figures are now becoming like they were, they felt buzzworthy when they first came out. Are they as sought after and collectible? No. Um, the chases are, I'm still seeing the chases going for insane amounts. No disrespect to anyone that wants a chase. I just don't agree with paying six, 600 to a thousand dollars for a figure that says one of 500 or one of a thousand. And it's not even numbered. So for example, I think it was the MJF or the Moxley a few months ago where it was like a chase, one of 500, one of a thousand. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like there was way more than 500 out there because it was like two, three a day, five, 10 a day where people were posting them and saying, Hey, look what I found in a store. Someone found two in one store. And it's just like, if it was numbered, that's one thing. Cause we could track them, but I'm not paying 600 to a thousand dollars for a figure that just says one of 500. And we don't have a numbered, uh, example of of what that number is mm-hmm. uh, plus you're telling me the figure's worth more than an old hasbro and it, it's but you know the, the market dictates it that's fine that's dandy it's just not my thing but um i i would see i would love to see a lot more figures out there that it just seems like it, it, almost every release is like a cody or kenny or or somebody that they've already done three or four times and i get it that's they must have sold great on the first run or first series or they wouldn't be doing it again i just like to see more uh variety in it you know and mm. what they released steph uh did you go try and find any no i have not i've seen people posting about them but i have not tried to find any i'm not a figure collector i get a little some funkos but i don't do figures you, you wouldn't want like a kenny or a hangman if it was available uh maybe i have one funko you watch one. fast times at ridgemont high love it yeah okay i got nice. one of uh, linda barrett here with the bikini on yeah <laughs> <laughs> does, it, does it come with the cars soundtrack the the moving in stereo no i have that stuck in my head that song anytime i hear that song i just you, you have to think of pb kate's naked it's like just it, it, as soon as that comes on you're like all right I, steph i know we lost you there but <laughs> it's a scene in fast times Run high where they play the song and she gets naked for a minute and it was probably for guys it's all a dream sequence too it's not yeah, even like it's, real it's, it's not even real but for guys of a certain age it was probably like the first time you kind of saw someone naked on a movie and so it's kind of like burned in your head and you're just yeah, like burned in your brain <laughs> yeah kind of um, i think i've seen it i think i've only seen it once though so i don't remember you might have seen it like they play it in a lot of like when they do those uh i don't want to say best of but when they do like the montage like the 80s movies montages like it's a it's a huge scene that gets replayed over and over again. So you probably have seen the scene a couple times. Mm-hmm. It's a great movie. WWE, I would- WWE recreated it last year. Um, they had um, well, Otis and Mandy, and they actually were in a pool scene. I think I remember like, that. Yeah. And remember the funny thing about it was 
um, Chelsea Green was under WWE contract at the time, and uh, Chelsea told Matt Cardona, hey, they're coming over here to film a pool scene that's going to be like Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And Matt Cardona goes, wait, so the company fires me, and now they're going to use my pool to film a scene. Tell me to get the fuck out of here. He was pretty hot at the time. Uh, They filmed it at someone else's pool later, but instead of like Phoebe Cates coming out of the the, the, um, pool, it was Otis coming out of the pool, taking something off to like, you know, flirt with uh, Mandy Rose. That's that's hilarious. I, I vaguely remember that for some reason. I don't know why. Like maybe was it the lead up to SummerSlam maybe or something? Yeah. yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, oh, the, the one thing. So the one thing about the figures that kind of uh, I miss. So when the AEW figures came out, uh, I went to a bunch of different Walmarts near me looking for them. And people were like, you know, you could just like buy them online. You could just go and like go go to collect. And I'm like, oh. that's not as much fun. Like, I like going to the, the excitement of walking to the store, walking to the toy section and be like, oh, they never had them. They never even had them. So some of them, like I even checked the one Walmart. So, you know, when they have the, the hangers and at the end, it'll say like what was there, like if they were empty, yes. like some of the Walmarts near me have never said AEW stuff ever at all. Yeah, that, that was when I kind of was like, oh, cool, we're going to get some AEW figures because you would see the 8 to 12 racks of uh, hangers with WWE stuff on them. Mm-hmm. And was the trip, you would see the AEW rings on the bottom. You would see like a, a, a bunch of them. And the belts. And the belts, but never the figures. And yeah. you would see the little hang tag that would say AEW and rival figures here or whatever. Yeah. And I would have, hey, do you guys have these figures in the back? And then someone in Matt Cardona's group posted about uh, using BrickSeek. And I was like, what's Brixie? They told me like, oh, it checks all the local Walmarts or Targets and lets you know if they have the product or not. So I would seek up here in Sacramento and it would say like three stores locally of AEW figures. So on my day off, I would drive over there, go check them out. And lo and behold, they wouldn't have them. And I would, can you guys look in the back? And I would give them the number. Well, where'd you see this from? Uh, BrickSeek? And I was like, well, that's not accurate, you know, because it could be stolen or whatever. I always found out with BrickSeek, if it says less than six, it's probably stolen. If it says six or more, there's a box sitting in the back somewhere. And they're just they're too lazy to get it, you know, but yeah. yeah. Working retail, I can tell you, <laughs> that's exactly, I'm just thinking from my retail background of people coming in, go, well, I saw it online. I saw this. I'm like, yeah, but inventory could have been counted wrong. Something didn't show up in a box that was supposed to, that's showing. So oh, you, you re- yeah. can't really trust anything under, under that amount. Now, now, I've seen some at Target over the last couple months. Uh, the local Target by me had like a Darby Allen and MJF. Uh, I remember I actually sent them to Chad Austin because he still hasn't seen them at any store. I know it's crazy. Ringside collectibles. You could buy like really any of the figures anytime, but it's like that's part of the fun is the drive over there, the checking it out, the, mm-hmm. you know, hoping it's there. And maybe you might find that one in 500 or one in 1,000 chase or whatever, you know? Yeah. Here's one figure that uh, it's kind of a a thing that always boggled my mind. And maybe you can explain it better. I saw once it was a WWE figure. I forget which line it was, but each one came with a body part and you could put together a JJ Dillon doll or a Paul Ellering or a John Laurinaitis. Right. And I thought to myself, well, who the hell, if you got it all together, would want a JJ Dillon or a, or a Paul Ellering. But then I realized well, it's probably super rare those figures to be completely put together. So is that the whole point of it? Like those, a lot of those figures don't exist. Yeah. Um, well, the John Laurinaitis one, I'm a huge Johnny Ace fan going back to the all Japan days and 
the dynamic dudes with Shane Douglas and back when he was the flag bearer for the sheep herders. I've been a huge fan of Johnny Ace. Mm. So um, I've actually tried looking for his build a figure because that's the only one WWE ever came out with. You had to buy the figure. Mm. I can't find one for less than 60 bucks on eBay. Huh. So it's crazy when it, like four or five different figures make this one figure. Yeah. But yeah. That's probably what that, that's probably what it was. And I was like, because I thought to myself, who the hell would want a JJ Dillon figure? And then I realized, oh, they're probably super rare and worth a ton of money, and that's why they do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's a good way to get someone out there who's never gotten a figure before, too. And plus, you have to buy all these other figures in order to get it. Unless similar to tape trading world, you find someone who has, oh, you have the head. Of Paul Ellering, well, I got the Rocco doll and, you know, do a trade or something. I just saw the Rocco doll the other day and it was connected. It was oh, in China. A, yeah, China. China. Package. Yeah. Is that rare? Should I go back and get that? <laughs> I don't think it's like super rare. Oh, okay. Like, uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, that maybe, maybe someone that, you know, got the China or whatever, who doesn't give two craps about Paul Ellering, you know, work something out with them to get it, you know. Mm. But um, out of all those figures, I, you know what? It seems like over time, distribution is just not what it used to be on the figures. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I was actually a manager team lead of a target uh, nearby for a while. And it was like, it seemed like it was the same figures up there until Christmas time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it just, it seems like distribution is nowhere there, where it used to be, but I've seen a lot of those WrestleMania figures. It's um, Undertaker, Goldberg, China and Edge, I believe that are mm-hmm. the four. Yeah. I've seen them everywhere. That's really not that rare on the, on the last ones. Yeah. And now it's crazy. Like back in the day, like when you went, to the store and you're trying to find those LJN figures, they always had like the same four or five that you had. And you're like, I could never find, like, I'm trying to think of what there was one that I can never find. I don't remember who it was, but it, that used to be part of the fun, like going there and being like, who do they have? And like, Oh, I already got all these. Wow. <laughs> oh, I remember um, like comic books were my big thing growing up. I actually have a graded, like pretty much six through 100 on fantastic four in my closet. Wow. And, um, I remember like me and my best friends would take a bus and we would go all these different locations like Toys R Us, his comic shops and all that and look for figures when we were like 12, 13, 14 years old and stuff is, you know, just, you look back and you just like some of the stuff that, you know, you did and you, know, you, had, you had a pretty good life. You know? so, so what, so what happens? Like, do you have plans for your collection? I never like to talk about the next step in life, but like, where does Roy's collection go after he's passed away after he's gone? Um, the Kellyans are going to Ray Mysterio, believe it or not. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, it's actually my will. Uh, <laughs> uh, the rest of it, I really haven't even thought that much about it. Um, you know, it's just probably as much as they're worth. I'll probably just like, you know, well, you know what? My son, by the time something happens to me, you know, he's, he's, he had the, he's had the same girlfriend for three years now. I'm sure at some point they'll get married and have kids or whatever. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'll pass them down to my grandkids at, at some point, you know, but I'm still collecting. Um, I don't know if you saw on my Twitter or Instagram the other day, I posted the, the signed Ijo de Paraguayo figure. That I, I think I, I did see that on Instagram. Yeah. And it's like, remember he passed away like six, seven years ago. Uh-huh. And, you know, I'm always coming into contact with collectors from Mexico who have something beyond rare. Let me grab this real quickly. You know, this popped up and it was just like, you got to be kidding me. That he, he, he died like six, seven years ago. Mm. And here's a signed figure of his, you know. So. And do you know where, and do you know where it came from? Yeah, the um, 
person who had it, his uncle, his dad is a wrestler mm-hmm. and ver- it verified who it was. Um, there was this like match like three, four years ago where it like, his dad was in a match and he dro- dropped a cinder block on this guy's head and he had like a brain it, it, angel o demonio. And so it, I verified like who he was and how he got it and stuff like that. And it's, it's, it, once I verified it, you know, it was just like, well, how, how much? And, you know, I think he said 1000 pesos, 50 bucks. And I was like, I'll, I'll do it. You know? So. Yeah. I would do that too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The hard what's, what's the most that you've paid for a figure? Right here. $480 for psychosis, not even counting the shipping. Wow. And got him to autograph the back uh, at Expo Lucha 2018, I believe it was. Uh, when I told him how much I paid, he was like, wow, that's way too much. It was like, Do you have any? No. <laughs> I think yeah. on, the, on the psychosis reign in Mascara Sagrada, there's like less than 25 in the world uh, still in the package that exists. And Ray, Ray and Sagrada both told me that that these are the only ones they've ever signed to. You, you've had guys come to you about matches. Have you ever had guys come to you about like, do you have my figures? Yes. You know who came to me the other day? Um, uh, Marco Colioni, Mark Gindrag. He, the, um, yeah. Really? Yeah. What's he doing now? He lives down in Mexico City. He's a soap opera star. I did not see that coming. <laughs> wow. The guy moved to Mexico in the mid 2000s, became a big star down there. They changed his name to Marco Colioni, you know, uh-huh. like Italian bo- mob boss or whatever. Yeah. He uh, learned Spanish perfectly and he started doing soap operas down there. And he became a huge soap opera star along with being a pro wrestler. He does it more than the pro wrestling the other day, uh, nowadays. Uh, there's a figure on the wall over there, the the, the last one, mm-hmm. and I ended up getting in the mail the other day, and I tagged him in it, and he's like, hey, if you ever come across another one, please let me know. Um, wow. I got, one, I got one right here. Uh, moving to Guerrera. This was his first figure ever. It was made by Riccolini back in 1995. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't even know it existed. He thought his uh, figure by uh, FTC on the wall was his first figure ever made. So when I showed him that, he was like, dude, can you please get me that figure? And I was like, yeah. So end up finding someone in Mexico who had it. And actually, uh, so it didn't get mailed to me. And I mailed it back to him. He ended up like, you know, driving over and go getting it from him. So, you know, it, it, it does happen a lot where, you know, a lot of people are like, listen, I really need my figure. Can you help me out? That's crazy. What's the most, uh, what's the rarest? I, I, I interviewed Matt Cardona once. And uh, he told me the, was it the Greg Valentine rhythm and blues? Yep. Yeah. That's the one that, but he said that he's seen not a, not a prototype, but he's seen like the, the blueprints or something that it was going to happen mm-hmm. or something so, like that. Uh, there was an original ad in some mm-hmm. of the magazines. It was like a Toys R Us ad or something like that. And they would show the figures in front of the ring. It was like Bushwhackers. Akeem and some other ones, and I may be wrong on Akeem, but then there was uh, uh, Greg Valentine Rhythm and Blues that was in the front. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cardona ended up meeting up with some people that worked for Hasbro at the time and ended up like getting the figures. And apparently, there was like three that were made uh, total. But the thing is, like at the time, the, the gimmick ended, so they split up Rhythm and Blues, so they were told to stop production on it. So, uh, yeah, that's like that one. And then there's the Kamala Moonbelly one, too, with Hasbro. Mm. The deal with that being was that there was a whole line made of not the moon, but the star on the belly. 
And then someone in Hasbro realized, well, he doesn't have a star on his belly. He has a moon on the belly. So then they made, get out of the window. <laughs> hey, you. Cat the problems. Cat, the cats are the real star of this. <laughs> Manyako, come here. Manyako. We just need Steven to make an appearance now. He's so far. My, my cat's name is Steven. He's so dead asleep. Like he like, he hasn't even popped up when I said his head. Steven. No, he's not even, he's not even paying attention. I did mute and yell at Kopi earlier because he was coming up. So oh. the deal, the deal with the um, he doesn't want kisses. Hey, can I have a kiss? Oh, <laughs> no, no, no he's like, I want to go in the window. You screwed it up. <laughs> <laughs> when I won't let him uh, do something, he'll go to the couch and he'll start like scratching it because he knows how much I hate it. Oh. He's like, I'm going to mess up your shit. He's like, Dad, we are on camera. You better get out of my face with that. <laughs> um, so the deal with the Kamala Moonbelly is there is, um, after the, the star, then they realized that there was an issue with the production. So they switched it over to a moon on the belly. They made 24 of them in the package. None of them went up for sale, but like there are people in the warehouse that had them because there was like some kind of test or whatever. But then they were told that the yellow card series was coming to a halt. So only 24 exist of the actual Kamala moon bellies. Mm -hmm. So that's um, probably one of the more rare ones too. So that stuff like that fascinates me because I'm sure that had probably happened a lot with a lot of toys. Like they're in the middle of making something and they were like, Oh, nope. That doesn't like the rhythm and blues one. Ah, they're not a tag team anymore. Greg Valentine left. Stop making it. You know, I'm sure that's happened multiple times. Yeah. yeah and the, 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 the Kamala moon belly, the, the rhythm and blues, Greg Valentine, are probably like the two biggest examples of like stopping something so early in the production or not producing it at all. And, um, you know, like nowadays we have to deal with the, are you familiar with micro brawlers at all? I've heard of them. Yeah. So on micro brawlers, there was like an X-Pac and Billy Gunn ones that were made. And uh, apparently Pro Wrestling Tees got like legal letters, like uh, we own that IP, for, uh, so don't do it. So they sent out what they had to, um, Pro Wrestling Tees sent what they had already made, like 50 or 100 of them to the actual guys. So, I mean, they're out there, but if you got one, it had to have come from someone who got it from Billy Gunn or from Sean Waltman, so... Yeah, yeah. There's those kind of stories nowadays, but you know, just being our generation, the 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 Greg Valentine and the Kamala one are probably going to be the two biggest mm. examples. And then um, LJN, I believe there was a um, Killer Con that was made uh, a prototype, and so there's an example of it existing. Uh, but they decided not to go with it because he wasn't with the company anymore. But it's mm. there's verified one in existence. Of a, of a prototype of it. So, wow. There's also like um, someone in the factory decided to have a good ha-ha and made like four or five naked Elizabeths in production. <laughs> yeah. This, this should be its own show, like <laughs> looking for these types of like figures, like the naked Miss Elizabeth figure. <laughs> if you look on eBay, I believe one is up there. Someone would fully shown it too, by the way, and has a certificate of authenticity. I think they're asking 15 grand for it. Oh my God. Yeah. Jeez. That's yeah. insane. This is one of the reasons that I love. I'm not that naked Elizabeth's going to show up. This is one of the reasons I like going to flea markets and, uh, you know, yard sales. Cause you never know what's going to pop up. You know, the biggest thing about that is um, I'm a huge, I grew up on Atari 2600. Mm -hmm. It's crazy reading the stories of people that go to flea markets and find old Atari games 
And then they post it and it turns out like no one's ever heard of that game before. Like, have you heard the story of Red Sea Crossing? Mm. Someone was at a, a yard sale in, I think it was Pittsburgh again. And they ran across a couple games that one of them was like a music game or something where with a very low distribution. And the other one was Red Sea Crossing. He posted it and people were like, oh, this is fake, fake, whatever. And lo and behold, someone did some research and found out like there was ads in like a Christian magazine in 83 and didn't even have a name, but the game existed. And lo and behold, uh, Red Sea Crossing could be or- only ordered from the mail-in uh, as a mail-in game. And someone actually bought it, but then, you know, didn't, uh, you know, hold on to it and sold it at a yard sale for 50 cents. And the guy ended up selling it for like eight to $12,000 on eBay because there was only like three or four copies in existence. Yeah. That, that yard sale, garage sale, eBay flipping market is just insane. What people can track down at those. I know. It's amazing. But I always find myself doing this. Like I'll go, cause like, I don't know everything about everything. Right. So I'll see something that's kind of like, looks weird to me or like rare or something like that. And I like taking a look at it and then I'll kind of put it down and I'll take a walk around. And I'll just do this with my phone. What is the thing? Like, I like try to find it online. Like what the hell it is. And like, you don't want them to see you do that because yeah. if they see you looking, they're going to realize, okay, he's discovered something that I don't know. So he's going to come back and want to buy this. So this is obviously something that's worth something else that he found. So you're like, I like kind of like do a lap and I'm like, why does this, what is this thing? And I like look up like, like uh, Garfield eating a toothbrush with, and it's like, you try to find it. So that that's the kind of stuff that I enjoy doing. I never really end up finding anything, but uh, actually I did once I found a, uh, and I ended up cleaning it up and selling it. I found a lunchbox that was made by um, Kellogg's in like 1969. And it had like um, all the original figures on it, like Tony, the tiger and stuff like that. Uh, the condition I bought it, I think I bought it for like 10 bucks. I ended up flipping it for like 40, but like mint condition ones were on eBay for like a hundred, $200. Yeah. Nowadays, probably even more, you know, as crazy as I really went into this whole pandemic thing, thinking, um, things were going to be less in value and it just turns especially the trading card industry. That's the one that really blew up during the pandemic. It's, yeah. it's insane how this went. Um, I think that's like Gary, a, Gary V's fault. <laughs> it's like, it's like yeah. everyone had time to all of a sudden look through all the stuff they had sitting in garages and basements yes. and attics. You're, you're exactly correct. Um, I'll, I'll give you a good example from my own life. Not that there's anything there. Cause I'm sure he's looked a thousand times, but my cousin uh, is retired now. He's only like 51, 52 years old. And he's been helping his mom. Who's 78 clean out her house. Because, well, one, he's retired and two, they weren't going anywhere with the pandemic. So there's nothing else to do. So that's probably what it was. Like people have more time than ever to go, oh, what the hell is all in all those boxes in our basement or in storage or whatever? Or did you know this was still here? That kind of thing. So I think you're right. It's just more time gives people more time to look for things. You know, and you mentioned the whole like walking away to check something out and making sure that the seller wasn't aware of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard the story from someone that was buying Japanese magazines for me and he was telling me like, hey, are, are the cards in there? And I'm like, what cards? And I talked to David Peck, who's like the top guy when it comes to wrestling cards. And he was telling me that um, he contacted a, a Japanese seller and who was who selling like magazines and it was like a Japanese magazine for like $25. 
and he messaged him because he wanted to know ahead of time, hey, is the Andre the Giant card on page in between page 17 or 18 or whatever? And when he sent the message, like five minutes later, the or no, within seconds, the the um the listing on eBay came down. And so he kind of tipped the person off that he had something really rare there. Really rare and wanted to get it off there. Yeah. I can imagine that. Yeah, happening. That's yeah, crazy. Exactly. So, Roy, we've had a great time talking to you. Tell everybody where they can find you online and find out more about you. Sure. Um, Twitter, uh, at Roy Lucier, R-O-Y-L-U-C-I-E-R. My inboxes are always open if you have any questions about uh, wrestling tapes, figures, the history of it. Um, I do work six days a week. Um, so, I mean, I may not answer immediately, but I will get to it at some point. Uh, mm. I, I, I we all have a story about where we grew up and what we watched and what we were a part of. My story is mostly SoCal, Los Angeles, Anaheim, Garden Grove. Now it's Sacramento. I've lived here for 10 years, but I've got a hell of a story to tell about my years down there. And I was just lucky and fortunate to go to a lot of shows and be part of a lot of special things uh, personally. You know, I'll never forget the Peace Festival. Are you familiar with the World Wrestling Peace Festival, by the way? Mm. Antonio Inoki had this idea of world peace through pro wrestling. So he had this event June 1st, 96 in Los Angeles called the world wrestling peace festival. And he had every promotion like um, WCW, AAA, CMLL, new Japan. And there was like another one that would have matches all on the same show. Well, there was a local radio show called squared circle with the shadow man. And, um, I got a phone call a month before the show happened and Shadowman calls me up and he goes, Hey, I just got a phone call from Anoki. He asked me if I would step down from the show and have you be a host for the whole month because you know, the wrestlers, you know, the storylines and all that. So I was actually on there for one whole four straight weeks talking about the peace festival, the matches, the angles, the wrestlers, all that stuff. And it's like, I, I've lived a very fortunate and blessed life and I'm not even 50 yet. So I still got a hell of a story to tell. And, um, Feel free to inbox me any questions, figures, wrestling, anything in life. Um, you know, I'll do my best to, uh, to answer them. I'm also on Instagram at, I believe it's Roy Lucher, hundred percent Rudos. Uh, yeah. I think, I think that's what it was. Yeah. Uh, I changed it so much. I have no clue. Yeah. Roy <laughs> Lucher, hundred percent Rudos. So R O Y L U C I E R 100, the number percent Rudos R U D O S. Cool. Yeah. All my inboxes are always open. Awesome. Well, hopefully somebody reaches out because they've got something rare that you've never seen or heard. <laughs> I, I would love that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, if you got something you're looking to sell, by the way, if I am not interested in it, I'll always do my best to hook you up with someone who can. You know, that's the great thing about this community is like, for example, if David Peck, uh, here's someone that wants something lucha related or has a question, he always sends them to me. If someone inboxes me, hey, I found this really rare card of whatever, and I don't know anything about it, I'll send them to David and so on and so forth. You know, I was, um, I sent a lot of people over to um, the producers of that show that's on A&E now about the hidden treasures. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, like, you know, they're always trying to look for something new and something different. So I knew a lot of people that had these, like, really interesting and rare collections. So I would hook them up with them and, you know, it, this is a great community here. So it's, it's something I'm happy, happy to be a part of for sure. But yeah, Twitter, Instagram, feel free to always hit me up. Oh, my YouTube channels, by the way. So 
I have like 10 or 11 different YouTube channels. <laughs> wow. Back in the day, I used to have one YouTube channel and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden someone would get a hair up their ass and copyright a couple videos and my whole channel will be gone. So I decided now I'll put everything up on their own YouTube channel. So AAA Lucha Libre has its own YouTube channel. CML has its own YouTube channel. Olympic Auditorium has its own YouTube channel. WWWF has its own YouTube channel and so on and so forth. That way, if one channel gets taken down, the other 10 still exist with no problems. So it's been a good little formula. So if you type my name onto YouTube, you're going to see tens of thousands of videos that I have put up and continue to put up because I still, I have so much more to do today. And, you know, I'm, I'm working six days a week right now. And, uh, you know, at nights I try my best to upload a couple while still being a good husband and kitty daddy and (laughs) everything I can, you know, but, um, yeah, feel free to reach out to me. That's all my social media and YouTube and, uh, you know, I really, really, really appreciate you guys, both of you having me on, by the way. We, we love talking to you, Roy. We'll have you on again. I, I'd love to, for sure. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Wow. You made it to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, and leave a rating and review on iTunes to catch all the latest from myself, Chris, and our podcast, you can go to www.notaboutwrestling.com. You'll find previous episodes, articles from episodes, and links to all of our social accounts. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.